Hallo und guten Tag, dear listeners. Welcome back to the Zeitgeist podcast with me, Katja Heuer, a German-British historian who shamelessly uses this platform and the accompanying blog to disseminate her Teutonic insights around the world. And today I have a very special guest with me to help me do this. It's none other than broadcasting legend and veteran car journalist James May. Welcome, James. Hello. <laughs> for I didn't the... know I was legendary. Wow. <laughs> well, you are now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, for the benefit of our international contingent here, um, who may not be as familiar with James as people are in uh, Britain, James is best known for being the co-presenter of the hugely popular car show Top Gear and more recently the Grand Tour on Amazon Prime. But he has also done many other programs on topics as far-reaching as science, traveling and wine. Fun fact, James is also a publican, which <laughs> as far as my uh, beer drinking habits go as a German, I'm naturally quite intrigued by. So how is that going, James, given how many pubs are struggling at the moment? Well, it's I'm not actually the publican. I'm the co-owner of the pub. We installed a manager, which is the very sensible thing to do, somebody with um, a lot of experience of running pubs. Because one of the great British male fantasies is owning a pub. <laughs> Everybody sort of thinks, ooh. I could do that one day and I'd love to run a pub. And they don't realise that it's extremely hard work, mm. uh, antisocial, unhealthy and not very well paid. And as you say, pubs are struggling. Ours is doing okay. It's become very popular recently, which is gratifying. But even so, it's not a... Um, the business people would say the model is largely unsustainable, mm. I think. So, what's, yes. it, what's it called, if our listeners want to? Uh, the Royal it? Oak in Swallowcliff, South Wiltshire, just off the A30 between Salisbury and Shaftesbury, serving a range of fine wines and excellent home-cooked food. <laughs> I mean... Rooms are available. There's a lot of excellent walking, bird-watching and cycling in the area, plus some historical things to look at. Old airfields, for example, and the cathedral. Wow, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> sold on that one. <laughs> and the pub itself is quite old and falling down, so... Uh, excellent. Even even better as a historian, that, that always intrigues me. Um, so you're clearly a man of many talents and interests, and one of them is history, um, which combined with your expertise on cars makes you the perfect person to chat about Germany and its enduring love for cars. It's a relationship that's come under a lot of scrutiny recently because people fear that the phasing out of the combustion engine might usher in a decline in Germany's world domination <clears throat> when it comes to car exports. <laughs> uh, but let's start at the beginning. So despite its important engineering breakthroughs in the 19th century, so names like Rudolf Diesel, Gottlieb Daimler, Wilhelm Maybach, Karl Benz spring to mind, um, Germany still wasn't necessarily destined to make cars that would sell en masse around the world, was it? So who dominated the, German, uh, sorry, who dominated the car market before the, the Second World War and why wasn't it Germany? Uh, that's a very good question. The car market before the Second World War was fairly small, I suppose. I mean, cars didn't really become popularised until the 50s, possibly even the 60s. I mean, even as a child, I knew people who didn't have a car. I knew people who didn't have a telephone as well. <laughs> Britain was a bit backward then. Um, but prior to that, there were there were a lot of British cars in the world because we had various mechanisms for selling them that you probably know about. Um, there was quite a bit of American stuff in the world as well. And I, it's a good question, why weren't the Germans more dominant? Because they were definitely technically innovative. I mean, some of the things that we have on cars today are, well, the car itself is sort of a German invention, but things like fuel injection is something that was pushed massively by, well, the German aero engine industry, really, in the 1930s. But that 
that made fuel injection a possibility for cars later on. And of course we need it these days because with the advent of things like the catalytic converter, you can't really run a car engine on a carburetor anymore. Fuel injection was needed and it improved cars immensely because it improved their specific outputs and their efficiency and their cleanliness, obviously. So back to your question, why didn't the Germans dominate? I don't know. Maybe they were too busy selling cars to themselves. That's quite possible. I mean, there, there is a, an argument that's been made by many that it was actually, you know, Hitler's entire kind of social project around the car, kind of making it literally a, creating a people's car, the Volkswagen, to, to try and sell it to the masses. That actually was maybe the breakthrough from high-tech engineering to affordability in some ways. Well, it should have been, although... As far as I can tell, none of the people ever got a beetle. They all went. Um, they all went to the military, and then after the war, they all went to the Allies, mm. and then eventually, the German people got the car that they'd been promised some fifteen years earlier. I think so. Um, I, the beetle is interesting because I think, despite what people say about the Model T, for example, and the Austin Seven, I think, I think the Beetle is the true people's car because it was a effectively a government initiative. It was central planning and it had a, a very specific purpose to mobilise the people, which the Ford Model T did, but it did it by default by becoming cheaper over its lifetime as the production of it was streamlined. So the moving production line and so on, the car came down in, in cost by about, well, almost 60% over its lifetime mm -hmm. and the wages of the workforce went up. So it was inevitable that people buying their first car would buy a Model T simply because it was the most affordable. But I don't think it was envisaged as a people's car, even though Ford said he wanted it to be for the great multitude. I think the Beetle, somebody sat down and said, right, these people need a car and this is what it will be like. Yeah, quite literally, and actually stamped the whole sort of car city around it out, yes. of, out of nowhere as well and, and created a, a place. Large, largely by ripping off the innocent German working people, I think. Um, <laughs> But that's a different subject. Possibly. Yeah, on lots of other issues as well. <laughs> um, well, you talked about this quite a bit in, in one of your car shows, Cars of the People, uh, where you also said a line that sort of stuck with me over the years, where you said, um, to win at cars, first you must lose a war. Um, yes. So how, how did Germany's sort of, you know, utter defeat really politically, economically, morally, um, actually help it build its mighty car industry? Well, uh, my theory is, uh, this does need a bit more work, but Germany and Japan both uh, did something very similar. They were both uh, prevented from making armaments um, or munitions or anything like that, um, but they still had all the engineering expertise that goes into those things, and they had to look for the, the next best thing to do, if you like, and it was cars and motorcycles because they're exciting to technical people and, and engineers and designers and so on. And in Britain and America, um, we spent a lot of brain power and money on defense and that's i think where most of the really great brains went but the great brains of germany and italy uh, sorry japan and to some extent italy mm. couldn't do that so they went to well first machine tools which are necessary for building cars and motorcycles anyway and then cars and motorcycles and I mean, so especially in the case of Japan, you know, their, their empire had been demolished and they didn't have resources. So they had to work on things like size, efficiency. And then we had an oil crisis mm. and then those things became appealing all over the world. There you go.
But that doesn't happen unless you lose the war first. <laughs> That's very true. I'm always amazed at the fact that the rest of the world kind of just embraced this eventually, despite the devastation and, and kind of deep suffering that Germany had caused to them, particularly Britain. Um, so when did it become acceptable in this country to sort of own and drive a German car? And when did it even become like a cool thing? Well, I... Now, if I can go back to my teenage years, so in the 70s, which was spent in the industrial north of England, um, car buying habits were very chauvinistic then, and Britain produced a lot of cars. So people drove British Leyland cars, mm. uh, British Fords, British Vauxhalls, and so on. And people who owned foreign cars were slightly eccentric. I had a few friends, one, one with a, a Volvo in the family, that was slightly odd. Another, an old girlfriend of mine, her dad had a Saab. And that was very odd. It was very unusual. And then there were a few people who had a Mercedes-Benz E-Class. And in those days, I mean, we were, we were slightly sniffy about them because nothing to do with the war, but German cars then were very austere, mm. but, but very meticulously made. So when you bought, I mean, this goes right on until the 90s when I started working on car magazines, but if you bought... Um, a sort of mid-range Mercedes saloon or BMW 3 or 5 series. It didn't even come with a radio. And a lot of people... Just distract you from the driving experience. <laughs> yes. Well, they had a hole where the radio could go, and people generally did buy a radio for them. But it wasn't part of the car. They were... And I seem to remember driving one Mercedes that only had an electric window on the passenger side because on the driver's side, of course, you could reach the handle. Mm. So you didn't need that extravagance. <laughs> and you'd also the same with mirrors. You'd have a remote mirror on one side and a perfectly manual one on the other. But then I think people recognised from the about the mid-70s onwards that Germany was just striding ahead in car design. I don't know if you remember from Cars of the People where I... I compared the Triumph Dolomite mm. Sprint with the Neue Klasse BMW 3 Series, and the 3 Series was just miles ahead because BMW ripped everything up and said, right, we'll start again. Mm. This is a new range of cars, and they're completely new. No old engines, no old platforms or suspension systems, but they're all new. I don't know how they did it because it must have been colossally expensive, but as a result of that, they leapt ahead, and, and uh, we developed a taste in Britain quite quickly after that for German quality mm. and it's all linked up with our ideas about German efficiency and yeah. precision and, and pedantry frankly. Yeah I but. find that quite interesting <laughs> because there's a lot of that in car adverts as well isn't it when they oh, use yeah. German slogans and, and just the way that they're made it's exactly designed to appeal to that sort of sense of. Yes we, we milk that yeah. it's, it, it is a cliche but cliches always have some founding in the truth. Yeah, I mean, be, being a German myself, I drive a very austere Volkswagen Polo that's just stripped down to its bare. It's literally yeah, we just have driving. a basic Polo. <laughs> but there, it is, I mean, it's, I don't know if I speak for everybody, obviously, but but thing, I remember I remember I did a, a test for a magazine. It was a rather dreary thing about um, small hatchbacks, so VW Polo class. So we had a Polo, a Fiesta, I think we had a Seat, I can't quite remember, but they were the low-spec versions. And I remember that in many ways the Ford won the won the test because it was you know, it was the fastest, it had the best equipment, it was cheaper, so all these things. But there was something about the polo that was just tasteful, and it was because of what was left out. It was 
it, it didn't have much in it, but what was there was very nice. It's very yeah. difficult to explain what it is. I agree exactly with that. I I was thinking about buying a Ford Fiesta ST because they just won all the you know kind of yeah. reviews everywhere. And really it was popular. the best seller. Yeah. It is really very you know affordable and everything as well. I just can't get away from but, from that yeah. simplicity and yeah. the straightness. I mean, it's also because it was my first car as well, the Polo. I think so. You kind of tend to return to that, but but there's the something Polo was about just nicer. And actually, more recently, we did work. I'd say recently. This is like everything else. It's it's much longer ago than you think but since we were doing top gear certainly we did a we did a a test of some sort where we had the vw up exclamation mark <laughs> that the up and against some other small cars one of them was the dacia sandera which is a great value thing and based on an old renault which was a nice car so it's it's pleasant to drive and it was very low price but the up was just nicer mm. and it's difficult to explain why but niceness is very difficult to achieve in cars good is relatively easy but, mm. but nice yeah they're just it, sort of neat it's, in a, way it's a weak word but yeah. it signifies something very important yeah no i agree so do you own a german car yes i, I have a polo and a porsche 911 that would be my choice about the money to buy one <laughs> yeah and i didn't until recently have a bmw i3 but i gave that to my dad so those are the only two German. I'm just making sure. Ah, oh, well, no, because I also have a beach buggy, which is a Beetle. Oh, was that the so one that was in the yes. show? Was it? Yeah. I had to have it rebuilt because it was quite badly broken. But that is actually a <laughs> nine. It's a very early Beetle underneath, something like 1955. So the VW factory had only just gone back to the German people at that point. Mm. So. But I mean, that's the chassis and the suspension and the basics of the engine, but the rest of it is new because mm. it's a beach buggy. Yeah. So as people are concerned about the decline of the German car industry, I wonder where its peak actually was. Where would you put that and, and why? I think in terms of desirability, I would put the peak of German cars, this is when I most badly wanted one, um, probably between about... I think it's sort of in the 10 years, 98 to 2008, mm. or maybe maybe a bit longer. I still I still find BMWs quite tasteful. Mercedes more recently in the last, well, 10 years, to be honest, have become too blingy for my taste. Mm. And they're a far cry from the way they were when I first started writing about cars. When I'd be, I can't remember which S-Class, well, the big slabby one was just coming out then. So I, I drove the old... What's the model number? I can't remember. The very three box one that just looks like a you know, Mercedes all look the same, but they were just blown up on, size, blown yeah. up on the photocopy. <laughs> but that S class was a was a wonderful car, mm. but it was really quite Spartan. But again, tasteful mm. and and restrained and discreet. So it, it has a bit that. of a reputation in Germany for that sort of to be the car of the of the sort of wealthy middle aged man who wants a, a tasteful. Yes, but not, but not flashy. No. But I think Mercedes recently have become become quite glitzy. Mm. And, and slightly, dare I say, their styling has become slightly aggressive. I'm going to sound terribly woke now, but I don't, <laughs> I don't like... The, the toxic masculinity. I well, it's, it's, it's <laughs> toxic automotive almost. I, I just don't like cars that look aggressive. And I don't mean... I'm not talking about mid-engine supercars. I really like mid-engine cars because they can be very beautiful, but aggressive-looking SUVs or pumped-up hatchbacks mm. and crossover, I just I just find them a bit a bit unpleasant. Mm. 
Whereas the, the polo top. remains remains nice. Yeah. Like, there isn't a better word. It's a terrible <laughs> word, I know, but it's the right word. <laughs> well, if they ever wanted an advertising kind of slogan with you in it, they could say, yeah, James Mate said it's nice. It's nice, yes. <laughs> I did a column about this once, about how nice is... I was writing about a Volvo. It was the XC... Hang on, I, I, I'm getting old, you see, because I get the, this nomenclature mixed up, but it was the, the convertible, the XC40. No. That's the cross country. The anyway, the C forty convertible hmm. Volvo, which wasn't actually that brilliant because it was a bit wobbly and a bit weighty and a bit bendy, but it was incredibly nice <laughs> and it was really pleasant to be in. And I remember writing at the time that that is much harder to achieve with cars hmm. that that sort of desirability. Oh, and ultimately that's what sells cars, isn't it? It's somebody sitting it in them and saying i want this i don't really know why but i want it. yes i mean if if cars were a pragmatic purchase there would only be a handful in the world i've often said that actually the only car the world really needs is the vw golf that's the if you just had to choose one mm. car to do everything you'd probably choose the golf probably have an enormous variety of cars because although as car enthusiasts we go on about things like performance and road holding and steering wheel, most people couldn't give the far end of a brass fart about any of that stuff. They want to feel good when they look at it and sit in it. And yeah. and that's the bit they struggle with the most. Yeah, I agree. And and on that note, actually, I've always found it quite amazing coming from East Germany. And, you know, like what you said about sort of Hitler's deliberately designed to, to kind of build a car for a particular purpose, you could, in theory, have had the same thing in East Germany, where there's also a government there with a centralised economy, and they should have come up with something yes. that people actually wanted, and they didn't. And I always thought it was odd that they just didn't understand that a car wasn't a thing that you just bought to get from A to B, but something that is desirable, that you want to wash at the weekend. Exactly. That, that it's, it's the... The great 20th century love affair is between human beings and their cars. And if you take a few steps back and analyse it, it is absurd in the extreme because they're expensive, um, they're high maintenance, and for the most part, cars are clutter. They're fantastic when you're using them. But that's only a tiny fraction of the time. The rest of the time, they're just taking up the space of a, of a room. Mm. And, and there are bloody millions of millions, tens, hundreds of millions of them, all sitting around and it's it's sort of if you if they didn't exist and you proposed it now people would think you were completely mad <laughs> like a lot of these things but but nevertheless we you know we have been in love with them even a lot of people who pretend that they don't like cars or they think mm. they're terrible they still like a lift in a nice one <laughs> <laughs> yeah well how important then if, if that's the big dimension of this the sort of love between people and their cars how important is this on a national level do you think like the love of nations with with their own cars well i think things like cars and airlines are great ambassadors for nations um it, it's reassuring i mean I, I remember somebody um during the football world cup tweeted a, a picture of the stadium where the japanese fans had been and the Japanese fans had, had uh, tidied up all the litter and the bits of paper and put it in neat piles so that the people who cleaned the stadium could bag it up quickly. And you know, I remember looking at it and sending the picture to a friend and saying, this is why your Toyota <laughs> will be reliable. You just know. <laughs> yeah, it's so connected, isn't it, the way we yeah. think about people. and um... Yeah, so cars do, I mean, cars, a nation's cars go out around the world, usually, and they, they telegraph the... the that country's attributes to people, mm. I think. And it's the same with airlines. 
So given then this this centrality and, and the importance of caste to, to a nation, to a state, should Germany worry about falling behind on the electric car market? When, when I did some research last year uh, for an article on this, I encountered kind of just interviewing industry people and people, you know, within BMW and so on. Um, I encountered kind of the attitude that, well, it doesn't really matter who makes the batteries and the little motors that go in them. Um, it's important what the car looks like and people always want chassis and doors and kind of a BMW shell around something that may mm. no longer be German. I think they're wrong. I think there's something that makes a car desirable is kind of its its heart, its, its, its inner being. And most people, I think, associate that with the engineering. But I don't know yes. what you think about that. Well, I, I have electric cars. I've had several and I like them. But I'm... I'm slightly conflicted about it because I don't think it's anywhere near good enough yet as an idea. The battery technology isn't really good enough and there needs to be another breakthrough and nobody knows what that is yet. It's one of those things that we don't know. We don't know. Um, and that's the sort of thing Germany would normally be very good at. But it hasn't happened yet. And I know exactly what you mean. The electric motors are... Have, I've been writing about this recently for the Sunday Times. They have a totally uniform personality, whether you have a small one or a very powerful one that gives you the, you know, the high performance Tesla, which is faster than a supercar. But it's still, it has exactly the same mechanical character mm. as a Nissan Leaf. It hums and it's an electric motor. So there's nothing to get particularly excited about there, apart from efficiency and range, which is one of the things that makes electric cars seem a bit boring. But I think you're right. I think it's a bit of a folly to think that people won't know that the, the heart of this car, even though it's now something rather banal, yeah. a battery and a motor, is not from the same people who are building the shell and trimming the cabin. And also, I mean, there must be an argument for car manufacturing security, mm. like the one we have about food and energy. If you're dependent on the other nations for your batteries and your motors, you, they've sort of got you over a bit of a barrel, I think. So would you think that this is something for the state to get involved in or is, is industry itself supposed to sort this out? Well, the state getting involved, let's look at the Beetle, British <laughs> Leyland. Um, it doesn't have a very good record, <laughs> although the French have done it quite successfully. I, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of state involvement. I think governments are supposed to organise the health service and park benches and, and tax returns and things. Um, and British government advice on car buying has been shocking in the last 20 years. I mean, they were the ones who told us all to buy diesels and now tell us we can't drive them in London because they're so terrible, you know. So you should go to Autocar for your car buying advice, not, <laughs> not the government. Um, so I, th I suppose what I'm saying is the market should decide, but the electric car, it, it's in a difficult place because I, I'm not convinced by the demise of the internal combustion engine. I think it's going to be around for a very long time. There are interesting things happening in things like synthetic fuels. Another thing the Germans did early on, mainly because they had no choice. Um, and so it's not quite as clear cut. And the technology in, in electric cars, they're fantastically convenient. I like driving them. Uh, they're clean and quiet and they're polite and all the rest of it. But the battery technology isn't really good enough. They still take too long to recharge even on superchargers. And everybody goes on about, oh, we've already got 100, and, I can't remember what the figure's up to now, 180,000 car charging points in Britain. Please check that figure, because it's probably wrong. <laughs> and only, you know, so many thousand petrol stations. But 
petrol stations have multiple pumps and you occupy them. I'm so sad that I've actually timed this in my own car. You can <laughs> occupy them for as little as three minutes, mm. including paying. And you simply can't do that with an electric car. So for it to work, for it to be universally adopted, we need tens of millions of charging points, I think. Yeah. But certainly millions or battery swap technology. But I feel that that just pushes the charging issue into you know somewhere further down the line. It's 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 a lot trickier than people think. And people forget that electricity isn't a resource, it's simply a means of energy transfer. So you, it's it's also a big energy energy generation question as well. So but having said all that um, all car manufacturers with an ounce of gumption ought to be looking very carefully at electric cars. And I'd far rather they did that than waste billions of pounds and hundreds of thousands of man hours on autonomous cars, because I think that is a total myth. I just don't, mm. there's going to be some automation of delivery vehicles. There will be some driver aids, but we already have some. My Tesla has some. But this popular pipe dream that in a few years cars will be driving around by themselves and will come and collect you from the pub is just nonsense. <laughs> it's simply not going to happen. But they're all they're all sort of being bowled along by it and nobody wants to be seen not to be taking part. Mm. So they're you know, experimenting and fitting all this stuff. I think all that effort would be better applied elsewhere. But isn't aren't all of these things like automation and you know, using electric cars and so on, aren't they all eroding kind of our traditional relationship with the car because it's no longer kind of this organic almost thing that, that we have. In, in that has with... a personality. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is. But I, I see, I, I've wrestled with this one a lot. The thing about cars with engines, piston engines, is they do have, I mean, some people call it soul, but I think that's a bit lazy. It's mechanical character. And it does reveal something of the soul of humanity, which is more interesting. But ultimately, we like them for their flaws because internal combustion engines are quite mm. difficult to manage. You know, you have to have a gearbox of some sort. They have quite a narrow power band. They, they have peaks and troughs in their delivery. They vibrate at certain speed. All these things, which are actually failings in many ways, but they give mechanical character and we love mastering it and all that disappears with essentially a two or even one pedal electric car so i think we have to we have to learn to love different things about cars if we're going to sustain the relationship it can't be about engines if the engine is in fact going to disappear but maybe it won't i'm sort of glad i won't live long enough to have to worry too much about this <laughs> And, and do you think that also changes something about nations and their cars in terms of that? I think that's the deep worry in Germany. People associate industry in general, but particularly the car industry with, with German economic greatness. And I think yes, once definitely. that erodes, I think that's the deep worry. I think there's something very deeply entrenched in the German psyche that worries that once you basically have a Chinese battery in a, in a German shell, you lose something essentially German. Would you Would you subscribe to that or...? Yes, possibly, because I I think, you see, the theory used to be when, for example, BMW opened a, a plant in the States mm. to make the Z3, wasn't it, sports car. People said, well, the important thing is that it's made by BMW, not in Germany. But actually, I'm not sure they were right. I want my German car to be made in <laughs> Germany by Germans. You know, so that I know the soldering will be good and so on. Um, I think I said in Cars of the People when I opened the bonnet of the 3 Series, I said there's something in here that, that you know guaranteed that this car would be excellent and it was the little plug and it just said made in, it actually said made in West Germany mm. at that point. Um, but there's something in that and we all, we all know it. 
and it's in the small things that the rot starts, as somebody once mm -hmm. said. So I, yes, I think, I think you probably should work on your own batteries. Mm. Well, thank you, James. That's all we have time for. I hugely enjoyed our chat, and yes, I hope my, <laughs> my listeners have too. Um, before you go, have you got a tip for any young Germans listening who might be on the brink of buying their first car? What would you advise them to get? Oh, now, I don't know. So in Britain, um, the issue for young people with their first cars is usually things like insurance. Um, and most, despite what the car adverts tell you, where they're always trying to pretend that, that new cars are driven around by gorgeous 22-year-olds, <laughs> most people that age have to buy something mm. secondhand or not. Most people can't afford most most grown-ups, you know, can't really afford new cars. So I would I would say I would go for I would forget ideas about performance mm. and handling. I would actually go for efficiency, quality. Uh, you know, quality and reliability and something with a bit of space that you can put your mates in because that's what was really great about first having a car is you could take your mates places and you could you could go further than you could go on your mm. bicycle you know <laughs> so but it's very difficult you know I, people not bigger question but people sometimes say to me what is your advice for young people and I always say my advice to young people based on my own experience is that 95% of advice is bollocks <laughs> And you shouldn't listen to old people. There's a proverb in Japan that says um, old people should obey their children, mm. which is, I think, is very good um, because they will have their own ideas about it. And quite a lot of young people I know, when I say young, I mean early 20s or late teens, just aren't bothering with cars. Mm. They, they are in more rural areas because they're pretty much essential. But you know, people, young people who work for our production company who lived in London they just didn't bother. They used Uber, they used public transport, and occasionally they go on bicycles or walk. Yeah, I mean, it helps that it actually works in, in London and you can get about, but um, no, I totally agree with you on, on space and all that as well, coming from a rural area in, in Germany. I'd um, first, when I was sort of 15, 16, my grandfather gave me his um, um, Simpson, which was like a, an East German moped, basically. Oh, yes, I know. Which was, yes. which was great fun to, to drive. It's kind of the, the fastest thing you're allowed to drive on that on that license in any case. Were um, you allowed to ride that at 16? Yeah. Yeah, so that was like what in West Germ, my West German friends would have had a mofa. Mm, yep, yep, yeah, yep, same yep, thing, yep. isn't it? Yep. We were amazed by those because when I went over there, my German mate's sort of the best part of a year older than me, but I went to see him at the age of, I think I was only 40, but he was already 50, so he mm. had a mofa. And I thought, that was amazing. Mm. It's a, I mean, it's a feeble little Yeah, thing, well, you really, could get but, about... But it's a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. But I always had to have, you know, when you went to sort of buy a beer, which you're also allowed to drink at 16 in Germany, um, so you went to buy a beer, you had to have a mate on the, you know, on the back, basically, with the sort of beer crate left and yes. right holding it yes, as I you're precariously that. going up a hill with it. And yeah, yes. I was very glad to have my first car eventually and you didn't have to... But the one, that ignominity again. <laughs> the one, the one, my German mate Armin had. Well, they all, all, all his mates had them. Was a, was it made by Push or? They were all blue, but they only had one seat. But they had like a flat luggage rack, about like a bicycle mm. rack essentially. And I remember going with him to the shops, um, and having to sit on the back on the luggage rack. And he lived, he lived in a fairly rural area, but there was some sort of off-road routes mm. to the shops very bumpy and it was absolute agony sitting on the back of that tin thing <laughs> yeah whilst he had the well-sprung sort of almost like old-fashioned bicycle mm. like midwife's bicycle saddle <laughs> for his ass mine was on 
probably getting me back for something. I don't know. <laughs> well, at least you could sort of get it back. It's one of those things that seems uh, a happier memory in hindsight, I think, than it, it than probably it did happened at the time. than it really was. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, um, dear Hura, that's it from the Zeitgeist podcast this time. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to the blog. It's your support um, that keeps my output going. Auf Wiedersehen from Central London. Mm-hmm.